Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it's features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for Behind the Balance Sheet for more details. In a first for this podcast, I interview an author. And this was so good, it won't be the last time, I promise. Dan McCrum is the FT journalist who exposed the wirecard fraud and has written an amazing book about the affair, Money Men. It's been on sale in Germany for a few weeks and goes on sale in the UK from the date of publication of this podcast. The wirecard story is truly amazing. It's got more twists and turns than a best-selling thriller or a Bond movie. Wirecard was ostensibly a highly successful payments company which eventually reached the heights of the DAX 30 the 30 largest quoted stocks in Germany. Which may be one reason why the German regulator Baffin cleared Wirecard of misdeeds in 2017 and recommended a criminal investigation into market manipulation of the Wirecard stock price and accused Dan and a Financial Times colleague. The FT was forced to hire lawyers and to launch an internal investigation. In one of multiple measures used to conceal the fraud, Wirecard even attempted to bribe Dan's boss, as well as a leading short seller, to cease their investigations. Yet Dan and the FT kept at it. Dan's investigation lasted an astonishing six years. Many of the short sellers, of course, were forced to give up as the share price rose relentlessly. But Dan was persistent in the face of threats, with private investigators following him, and the FT resorting to using a safe room, code words, and talking in corridors because they feared their own offices might be bugged. The cast of characters stretches for four pages in the book, and the action moves from London to Munich to Manila. Many of the scenes are quite incredible. I don't know if they would be believable in a work of fiction, but the book Money Men is quite brilliant. We only cover a fraction of the saga in this short episode. And honestly, you should go out and buy this book today. I'll also write a review, which you can find on our website, behindthebalancesheet.com. After my chat with Dan, I interviewed Southside Research Boutique, The Analyst, which published over 
40 sell notes on Wirecard over a six year period and famous short seller Muddy Waters to get their perspective and to add some color. Make sure you listen to the end. As ever, I hope you really enjoy this episode. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. I wanted to start with your career and you started at Citigroup in the research department. Is that right? I mean, how did you then end up being the man that exposed <laughs> Wirecard? Steve, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, God, that's a long time ago, isn't it? I started in City on the grad program, sort of just working between research and the sales floor. And I basically write summaries of what the researchers had written. Take this big report and condense it down so the sales guy could get on the phone with the client and just read that. And, you know, it was fascinating. Like, stock markets are fascinating. I learned a huge amount about companies. I learned a little bit about, you know, how accounting works, not very much. Uh, but I sort of reached a point where I looked around the room, and I didn't see anybody who I wanted to be. <laughs> and uh, there'd been this nagging voice at the back of my head, you know, didn't you want to be a journalist? So I kind of decided I would quit before, you know, markets crashed, and there were lots more intelligent and educated people going for those sorts of jobs. And um, yeah, tried my hand at being a reporter. And so what you just applied to the FT and they said, oh, you've been in the city. We normally get it the other way around, right? <laughs> well, One of your colleagues has just, has just moved from Alphaville to a hedge fund, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Jamie, Jamie has just gone in the opposite direction, hasn't he? Which, uh, I mean, good luck to him. It'll be really interesting to uh, hear how, how that is. I was very lucky in that I managed to get a job on the Investors Chronicle, which is a great share tipping magazine. It's a fantastic magazine. You should all go out and buy it. I also write for the... Uh, oh, of Chronicle. course. Oh, brilliant. I didn't realize that. You know, very loyal uh, subscriber base. And I was basically doing the same job as before, learning a little bit about journalism. And the lucky thing was it was owned by the same company, Pearson, which owned the FT at the time. And I could see the internal job ads. So I sort of lucked into a job on Lex, you know, writing opinion for the back page of the FT. And, um, you know, I was terrified. Um, every day, I sort of kept expecting to be tapped on the shoulder and someone go, yeah, we've just realized that you're here. How on earth did this happen? The, the Lex column is really challenging, right? Because it's very, I mean, it's very highly authoritative commentary and some amazing journalists have been through there. I mean, Dominic Lawson, oh, Lucy yes. Galloway, I mean, and Stuart Kirk, uh, who is oh, recently the famous been, Stuart Kirk. The famous yes, Stuart Kirk. I worked with Stuart for a long time. So in your biography, you talk about other frauds before Wirecard. We will get to Wirecard, but I'm just curious because one of the, one or two of those, Quindell, Folly Folly, these were, I mean, fairly obvious frauds, right? <laughs> and they just carried on and carried on. I mean, well, let's just say on Quindell, uh, the serious fraud office investigated for many years and then closed its investigation and no one's convicted, just in case anyone's wondering. Um, but yes, it certainly, there was enough grounds there to suspect a lot of fraud, right? Well, I, I, I should correct myself. Mm. They looked like frauds. <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely had accounting problems. Yeah, and there were definitely accounting issues, yeah. And yeah, it, so writing about these sorts of things was this incredible in education in how those sorts of businesses work. And what happened was Quindell was attacked by some short sellers in like 2014. And I started to get interested after that, sort of saying, hey, what's going on here? Let's try and understand the business. And it was basically a tech gobbledygook press release machine. So it was, it was something to do with insurance, but it turned out they were basically a listed law firm, which is really unusual. And there were only two of them. Slater and Gordon was another one in Australia. And both of them had major accounting problems and basically collapsed. And the thing about Quindell was it had this rabid band of investors who had made a lot of money buying it retail. And Whenever I wrote anything about Quindell, they would all appear in the comments. And it became this sort of thing that the other readers would show up for because it was so funny because you would have these guys sort of go, you don't know what you're talking about. This is a great British company. Why are you bashing it? Do your work, McCrum, all of that sort of stuff. Presumably now you don't get that sort of pushback. Or did you get quite a lot of that sort of pushback with Wirecard? <laughs> I mean, the pushback from Wirecard was like Quindell on steroids, um, you know, with some friends in the security services. I mean, I mean, the thing about Wirecard, and this is the, I mean, this is why I felt I just had to write the book, 
was, as a journalist, you're not supposed to become the story, right? And with Wirecard, that kind of just happened. It took over my life and turned it upside down. And the deeper I dug into this company, which started out as, you know, oh, it's this curious little German payments company. And the more I looked into it, it was like, oh, there seem to be hackers involved and private detectives. And they've got some very angry lawyers. And then there are these bizarre moments where, you know, my editor, Paul Murphy, who worked with me on the whole thing, you know, he pulls me aside and he goes, yeah, Dan, you know, um, you know, the chief operating officer of this Wirecard company. Um, so he's been flashing around some documents to speculators in London, and they've got the recipe for the nerve gas Novichok on them. I think he's got some sort of Russian connection. And this, at that point, you're just going, what is happening in the world? I mean, this was the like amazing thing. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the book, and well done for, for writing it. Oh, thank um, you. But it was almost like, if it had been a work of fiction, it wouldn't have been credible. Because some of this stuff, uh, I mean, you talk about uh, a meeting between Nick Gold, a football agent, and a, and a representative of a Far Eastern investor. And it just, if, if, that had, if that meeting had taken place in a work of fiction, you'd have gone, well, no, of course that couldn't happen. Why is it so fantastic? I mean, is, was it just a, a work of Marcelek's imagination that, that he was a mad guy? I mean, it's... I mean, so... I mean, I think you've hinted at some of this here. It just sort of, it's like this cat and mouse game. Sort of we go backwards and forwards and each step just becomes crazier and more unbelievable than the next. And you're literally pinching yourself saying this can't be real. And so, um, so the main bad guy he mentioned, uh, Jan Marslek, fascinating character, this Austrian whiz kid. So he drops out of high school in Vienna, speaks multiple languages, and he goes to work for a tech startup. It's the late 90s. Everyone's doing that. And he gets poached to join Wirecard. But it turns out he's not quite as whizzy as people think. And he almost destroys the company because he's working on this big project, but it doesn't work out. But by that point, he's the only one who understands it. So he's too important to fire. And this sort of pattern repeats. He constantly takes the company to the brink of disaster, but somehow comes up with a way of getting out of it. He's the sort of cons like he's so charming. Everyone talks about, you know, he could talk for hours and you'll be completely fascinated. And um, he loves, you know, fancy dinners. He wears, you know, the most expensive bespoke shirts, not just bespoke suits. And he's stylish. Everyone who encounters him, they all start to try and dress like him as well. He sort of, you know, wraps people up in his orbit. But then there's this other side to him, which is, I mean, Either he is a spy or he's got a bit, a bit of a James Bond fixation and he likes hanging out with spies. So there's one example where um, he, he never goes on holiday. Like he tries to go on holiday. He's got this long-suffering partner who occasionally he takes to like, you know, fabulous spas, things like that. But whenever they try and go on holiday, two days later, he's back at work. Complete workaholic. So his friends, who include this Russian mercenary, say to him, okay, what do you want to do for a break? And he says... I want to do something which no one else in the world can. So the Russian guy says, well, how about, do you want to come take a walk around Palmyra in Syria, where the Russian mercenaries have just conquered from ISIS? He's like, sure, yeah. So he does, and there's in, he had this like base of operations, this mini palace in Munich. And there was a little chunk of sort of, you know, rubble from uh, a Palmyra <laughs> statue or something, which he picked up on this little sightseeing jaunt. So did you meet Marcelet? No, I never met Mar. It, it's this incredible thing where, I mean, it's a, it's a strange life when you genuinely have an adversary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I try and bring that across. I knew that he was the bad guy and we had to try and expose him. And um, there's all these, you know, I'm trying to work out what is happening inside the company. What is the fraud that's going on? And he's always at the fringes, you know. People refer to him. They're like, oh, that's one of Marcelek's companies, as if that explains things. And so I could never quite put him in the frame. But yeah, I never actually met him. The only time there was a meeting was when my editor, Paul Murphy, he had a couple of lunches with him, which started out the premise being there was um, a bribe on the table, $10 million to make the Financial Times stories go away. Now, for... Those of you who are listening to the podcast and not watching a video clip, I should point out that Dan is not wearing a designer shirt. And, <laughs> and $10 million, I mean, that's quite tempting. So 
what is it that allows you to rise above all of this and pursue an adversary in such a dogged fashion? Because most people would have given up. Why did you, was it just it got in, in your blood and you had to pursue it? I mean, journalist brains maybe work a little bit differently. There's this great book, Bill Buffett, Among the Thugs. It's all about uh, hooliganism in the 80s. And he goes and spends a load, time, load of time with Manchester United fans who go on these rampages around Europe. And he describes this moment where the Italian riot police charge them and he finds himself underneath a car being battered with batons. And he says part of his brain is going, ah, oh my God, what is happening to me? Yikes, got to stop, you know, getting a head injury. And then the journalist part of his brain is going, wow, this is an amazing story, isn't it? How am I going to write this and tell, tell everyone about it? So there's that aspect to it. I mean, um, it was, you know, it was this puzzle. Yes. Like, I knew it was this great story because I started out, I mean, when was it? God, it's eight years ago that um, I so first it, started looking at this. So it started, you were tipped off by John Hempton. Yes, John Hempton, the Aussie hedge fund manager. So John is an amazing analyst. I mean, he's probably one of the smartest people around in, in hedge funds and particularly at sniffing out fraud. So what happened? He tipped you off. And then how does it start? So you, John Hempton says, oh, you want to take a look at Wirecard. How, how does it, what do you do? What, what, how, do you, how do you get started? Well, what he actually said to me was, uh, would you be interested in some German gangsters? <laughs> And, and I think at the time, I just jotted the name down, Wirecard. I had a look at it, and I was like, I can't make head nor tail of this. You know, it, that was one of the tricks you use if you're a fraud. You make your business very complicated, and if anyone questions it, you just say, ah, you don't understand it. And so then it was a couple of months later, and um, actually because of Quindell, this British hedge fund manager called Leo Perry, um, really smart. He actually, it turned out, had a bit of a hand in uh, some of the information which was put out there on Quindell. He'd seen my work on that and he got in touch. Uh, the phrase in journalism is uh, stories get stories. So he calls me up and says, can we go for a coffee? And we meet in um, the Cafe Nero by Mansion House. Sit down and he sort of brings out these closely typed notes. And it's basically his theory of what's going on inside Wirecut. And to sort of summarize it very simply, it had spent five years buying up lots of weird little companies all over Asia. And when he looked at the details, nothing matched what Wirecard was saying about these deals. And the businesses looked in bad shape. They weren't worth nearly as much as Wirecard said. There were all sorts of problems with them. And it was like, aha, maybe there's something going on here. And that's what set me to work. And to start with, I mean, Wirecard was doing okay, processing sort of semi-legal payments for porn sites and gambling sites. And then they started to experience more competition as their former COO moved to an Israeli company where he pursued their poker customers. So that was when they needed to turn to fraud to engineer the, the continued growth. Is that? I think that's the moment. So, so the potted history of Wirecard is um, this German trainer distributor who's an entrepreneur, looks a bit like, um, you know, an aging rock star. He has a conversation with someone who works for Larry Flint on a plane, ends up starting a porn business, has to take payments for it. That leads him to start a payments business, which becomes Wirecard. And they sort of double down, double down, double down, becomes this great business. But there's this moment when, you know, the world is changing. Processing payments for gambling is a lot harder than it used to be. Get, you know, the US makes it illegal. All that porn stuff is going away because free porn. And at that moment, the Vans distributor, the aging rock star guy, he doesn't like the look of the business anymore and he leaves. And he also, his friend who is effectively running the whole thing, leaves and takes some of Wirecard's best poker clients with him. So you kind of have this moment when Wirecard is in crisis. There's a whole other thing with, you know, the dark lord of the internet, but that's too <laughs> much detail to get into today. And... Um, and I think that is the moment when Wirecard can't grow like it used to anymore. And that's when they have to start cooking the books. And that led you to interview Marcus Braun. Tell, tell us about that. Okay, so Marcus Brown is um, a funny character. And normally, if, you, if you're the Financial Times, you knock on the door of startup. They're like, yeah, let's tell you about our great business. And they were different. And this was one of the first red flags. 
they were like, oh, no, we can't talk to you. We're too busy with the results. Come to Munich and we'll have some junior product manager, you know, tell you about our exciting business. And then when I send them a bunch of detailed questions, all about, you know, little points about their accounting, they came back with uh, an email which effectively said, this is very suspicious. <laughs> These questions are very similar to those we've been asked by a short seller. Are you in league with them? Are you naively being used by them? And that was like, oh, I think we've hit a, uh, hit a nerve here. And so this leads to this, my one and only interview with Wirecard's chief executive, Marcus Brown. And he's a very cold character. Like all the staff say it, he's very aloof, you know, very proud. And he doesn't seem to have managed the business on a day-to-day basis. He's much more a figurehead. He would deal with sort of the outside analysts. But he, he doesn't travel. Like the rumor was that he was afraid of flying. And he would just sort of sit in his office, you know, checking the share price on his phone, sipping peppermint tea. Hmm. And, and he didn't do many interviews. And when I spoke to him, I sort of realized why, because he's, he's like a former management consultant. And it was all sort of blue sky jargon, you know, all that stuff about, you know, oh, we're just like Apple. But then he'll, you know, with three sentences of dense technical blah. And that went on for quite some time. And you're like, okay, I've got, I've only dimly aware what you're talking about. It's something to do with payments. But then we get to the point where I'm like, okay, effectively. So here's everything I've looked at. These funny companies you're buying in Asia. Looks like you're hiding something, aren't you? Are you faking your profits? And what I always find strange is, you know, he did say, yeah, that's bullshit. But he, he used a couple of tactics which are sort of notable. So he asked a question instead of answering it. Why would I do this? He, he didn't deny it. He sort of referred to outside authority. Why are all these analysts love us? We have a very prestigious accounting firm, Ernst & Young, auditing our figures. You know, I'm Wirecard's biggest shareholder. And the tone of it was strange as well. Like he was, oh gosh, yes, someone's asked me if I'm a fraudster again. Oh, I get this all the time. Let me explain to you why everything's above board. Instead of, you know, if I said to you, Steve, are you stealing all this money? You'd get angry. You'd be like, what are you talking about? No, I've never stolen anything. It's funny because this is a standard. I mean, these are everything you said are standard techniques of people who are trying to obfuscate. Yes. And, um, you know, obviously, if you're working at a hedge fund, you learn, either get trained or learn how to understand, you know, if people are, are, are telling the truth or not. And, you know, I've been doing doing that job for, for a long time. And, you know, assessing management can be, can be quite tricky. Mm. But knowing that somebody's honest is actually more straightforward. And I've had instances where people have tried to obfuscate and I've jumped to the wrong conclusion <laughs> because I think, well, there's something wrong here. But why is it that when you get a character like that, that is not answering the question, that doesn't get angry? I mean, I, I can re I remember vividly, we, I had a meeting with the, the chief executive of a Russian company mm. and they were raising money. And my colleague, who was Russian, said, um, well, why are you, you know, I said, why are you raising the money? And he said, oh, I want to put some money into my local football club. And my colleague laughed and said, oh, so you're a bit like Abramovich. And the guy jumped up and started shouting. And <laughs> how dare you compare me to, and, you know, when people are genuinely upset, they show it. And that seemed, people would, a normal person would be genuinely upset if you asked them if they were a fraudster. But as, an, as a hedge fund analyst, that's not the question you can really ask. I mean, that's one of the great fun things about being a journalist is you get to ask people very rude questions and they kind of have to answer, you know, because if you're an analyst, I mean, this is one of the things about, you know, how the sell side works in analysts generally is there's very little incentive for an analyst to ask difficult questions to put out a sell recommendation because one, no one rewards them for sell recommendations. I remember one of the things I think, uh, was it Tim Allen, who was an engineering analyst at Citigroup when I was there? I always remember him telling me, he was like, you know, if you ever become an analyst, your first job at a new place, never do a sell recommendation because no one will thank you for it. Like if you say buy this and it goes up and you make the money, great, they'll remember that. But if you're going to tell them to sell, and even if you do save the money by doing it, you're kind of having to say they've made the wrong decision in the first place. And no one likes to hear that. That's an interesting theory as to why there's so few sell recommendations. And I always thought that you know, the main reason was that it upset the management and you didn't really want to fall out with your main source of 
Oh, yeah, of, exactly. That's another one as well. Yeah, because they will just not take your questions on conference calls. They won't speak to you. They have the power in that relationship. So you had this interview with the chief executive, and it didn't go well. And then presumably you wrote up that your suspicions were confirmed. What, what happened next? So one of the challenges of trying to write about accounting fraud is unless you have really solid evidence, you can't use the F word in print because you'll get sued out of existence. And so it took me a long time to write the first sort of stories. They were called the House of Wirecard series. And they sort of frame Wirecard as this puzzle. Why is it doing these strange things? Why don't its numbers work? And I mean, I think, I mean, and then like a whole bunch of crazy stuff kind of happens. Some short sellers get involved and they present this other theory that Wirecard is a big money laundering enterprise because it processes payments and it was growing faster than everyone else and was also much more profitable than anyone else. And normally you can do one or the other, right? You can't do both at the same time. That's very challenging. Well, uh, that, Adyen? Okay. Um, but I, I don't think Adyen has uh, Wirecard's margins. I could be wrong. I haven't checked in a while. Um, I've forgotten what Wirecard's margins were. It's about 55%. So um, pretty close, I think. Okay. So, so you can do it, but I think Adyen is probably much more open about how they're doing. I, 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 yeah. Just for the avoidance yeah, yeah. of that, as the lawyers say, we're not thinking <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything, anything wrong with Adyen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Other absolutely. than the share price is quite high, still quite high. Um, and, and so there, there were these two competing theories. Is Wirecard a fraud or is it a money laundering enterprise? And one kind of excused the others. I think, you know, some investors looked at it and said, well, maybe it's making these profits in gray areas. And that's the reason it won't talk in detail about where it makes its money and how. And the real breakthrough was this moment in October 2018. So the stories hadn't worked. Wirecard had gone on to gone from strength to strength and had just entered the DAX 30 index. And I'm on the train going into work and I get an email one Monday morning from a whistleblower saying, would you be interested in some dirty doings at a financial company? And it turns out it's Wirecard. And actually, it wasn't the whistleblower who got in touch. It was his mother. So the whistleblower is this lawyer who works in Singapore called Pav Gill. Um, amazing guy, had this sort of amazing life. But he'd been raised by his mother who, you know, she was sort of the victim of an arranged marriage. Turned out her husband was a drunk. She got rid of him, raised Pav by herself, you know, whilst working as a banker. And he became a lawyer. And he was working inside Wirecard's Asian headquarters, discovered the head of the finance team there was cooking the books. It's really amateurish frauds, you know, like sort of, cutting and pasting the logo of some random company, slapping it onto a Wirecard invoice, and then submitting that for payment by the accounts team. And the numbers were all quite small, like 2 million euros here, 2 million euros there. But when, when they did an investigation and reported what was going on to Munich, the whole thing got squashed. And suddenly, this guy, Jan Marsalek, is put in charge of it. And the lawyers who were doing it in, in Singapore are like, hang on a second. Um... We're not sure what Jan's involvement in here is here, but he's definitely a witness to what's going on. It's at the fringes again. And he gets forced out. But what they did is they, uh, they basically said to him, well, you can resign or we're going to fire you. He said, okay, fine, I'll resign. But they didn't march him out the door there and then. They gave him to the end of the week. And so the next morning he goes into work, sticks a little portable hard drive in and takes a copy of all the documents that they've been doing of their investigation. And that's what it gives to me. So that's fantastic ammunition for you. I mean, this is the end of 2018. Yeah. Why did it take so long for the whole thing to unravel? Because at this point, you've got quite good evidence. And then the spotlight must really be on them because you've, got, you've effectively got proof that there's at least a small fraud going on and that the company hasn't really done what they should do about it. So um, there's a, yeah, so we publish, start of 2019, there's a fraud in Singapore. Small, but what on earth is going on there? And um, I also remember there, there's a great hedge fund manager called um, Eduardo Marx, who runs a Patento. And he did this whole presentation, I think, what was it called? Uh, Wirecard, where short sellers go to retire. Because <laughs> he'd, been, he'd been shorting the company for years and years. And what really wound him up was everyone was focusing on the amounts involved, you know, $30 million in the context of a 2 billion euro company. But he's saying it's the practices. The practices are what matter. Why on earth is the head of their finance team there doing all these stupid little frauds? And why didn't they fire him the second they found out? But the thing that you find with the frauds is it's very hard to convince people when money is at stake. 
particularly their own money. And if you've been invested in Wirecard for years, you feel like a genius. It's gone from sort of 4 billion euro market cap when I start looking at it to 25 and its peak. So people didn't want to see it, but also Wirecard did something very effective. It always demonized its critics as being in league with short sellers. And, uh, and this is where Nick Gold comes in. I think you mentioned him at the beginning. So we should probably explain this slightly mad scenario. So we get into this sort of rhythm where the Financial Times publishes a story. Wirecard says, no, it's not true. And by the way, you're corruptly involved with short sellers. And the German authorities buy that. They start investigating me and my colleague, um, Stefania Palmer, who worked on the stories with me. And then each time we, so then we go away and do a whole load more work, publish a new story. Wirecard announces it's suing us. Then we do another story. Wirecard announces it's got a billion dollar investment from SoftBank, the big Japanese technology conglomerate. And so every time we do a story, we're like, what is it going to take? So we reach this moment where suddenly I sort of have you know, the light bulb flicks on. And I'm looking at some of the documents which I've got from this pile from PAV in Singapore. And I'm sort of going, hang on a second. I don't think that company was in business. But here it is in the Wirecard books saying it's sending them a load of payment processing every month. And I look it up and it, no, hang on, it was a bank to binary, a nasty FX options broker which got shut down by the US government. I'm like, well, hang on, it got shut down there. So how on earth is it still sending Wirecard a load of business? And I start looking at the others. I'm like, hang on a second, doesn't exist. Out of business. So I start to realize this is the big lie. They're literally just making it up. The customers are fake. The profits are fake, the sales are fake. And so this is, I think, the moment to try out. We've got them. So we go to Wirecard for questions to ask them about it. That's how it works as a journalist. You can't just publish, you have to ask people first, get their response. And they come back with this tape, or this, they talk about this tape. And what you have is this guy called Nick Gold, who is like, he's a sort of just a big bundle of charisma. Like he runs a nightclub called The Box in Soho. And you know, he's sort of surrounded by beautiful women. He's one of those guys who like is immediately the life and soul of the party. Self deprecating jokes, like um, he'd hang out at the Chiltern Firehouse in London. And, uh, you know, he'd, he'd be like, he'd be jumping over the bar to make drinks for everyone, jumping mm. back over, people be stopping by. He's, he's that guy. And so he has this meeting in his office near the Chiltern Firehouse where in walks a premiership football agent with this guy who is supposedly a representative of Far Eastern money. And Gold has been primed. He's like, you need to give this guy a good trading idea. And then what they'll do is they'll trade together and they'll split the profits. And it's basically that, you know, he wants these Far East guys to do the trading with their money and then send him the cut of the profits. And what he says they should do is sell Wirecard because he's heard there's a new Financial Times story coming. And that sounds quite bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it did sound bad. And at this moment of this is it, we've got them, they come up with this tape and it's like slam the brakes on, they leak it to the German press, you know, there's all these lurid stories saying Financial Times in league with speculators. And so instead of publishing, suddenly the FT announces that it's investigating me and my editor, Paul Murphy. And I mean, what was Nick Gold's connection to all this? I mean, was he paid by Wirecard or do you know? I mean, have you spoken to him? Have you asked him? Um, oh, yeah. So I've asked, um, I've asked Nick about this. And what you have to understand is there is this sort of strata of finance in London and elsewhere that Paul Murphy calls the bandits. <laughs> and that should be understood as a sort of a term of endearment rather than <laughs> pejorative. Because, I mean, I tell the story in the book how he got to know these guys. He was, um, so Paul Murphy is this sort of very old school reporter. He's been doing it for, I mean, at least since the 90s. And, uh, and he was working for the Sunday Business, funded by the Barclay Brothers. And he quits to go back to The Guardian as finance editor. But his boss, Jeff Randall, says, I know you've got this story. I want you to get it. And what had happened is this broker had gone bust and this uh, roly-poly banker had sort of waddled up to him and handed over two carrier bags full of documents. And what it exposed was this insider trading ring in the city. And he basically blamed this somehow for the broker going bust. So Paul gets on a jet to Monaco at the Barclay Brothers' expense and spends two weeks whining and dining all of these guys, gets to know the whole bandit scene. And they're mainly sort of, you know, retired businessmen, you know, people with money who basically love trading, sharing gossip, maybe takeover gossip, that sort of thing. 
And he gets back and he writes the whole story, complete with, you know, carrier bags of cash, changing hands at borders, all the people involved. And he hands it in and the lawyers go, ah, there is no way you can write, publish any of this. And so what he ultimately does, to cut a long story short, is he, he's like, well, he can't expose these guys. He'll turn them into sources. And, um, and so he sort of knew a whole bunch of these guys in this world. And that's where Nick Gold comes from, you know, rich businessman. I mean, so he's a nightclub owner, but I think he also had quite a substantial stationary business. But, you know, who wants to talk about that? <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's all these guys who, like, they trade together, they share tips, and, it, you know, it's not like deep thought out investment. It's like, oh, what's right? Okay, that's a good idea. Get on your phone, make the trade. And it's all um, spread betting, because it's tax free. And you would have thought that high activity shorting Wirecard would have been sufficient to put pressure in the share price and undermine people's confidence. The, the company managed to skate over all of this. I mean, it, you, you have to admire in a slightly perverse way, mm. how well they executed all this. It makes me just wonder, you know, I mean, these are obviously very smart people. I mean, why didn't they just make money legitimately? I mean, there was a diabolical genius to it, wasn't there? And, and again, like, I mean, come back to this character, Marsluck and Brown. So Brown, I think, really wanted to be chief executive of a company. Um, and he had this prestigious position. But he was kind of a figurehead. Like the trainer guy and pornographer put him in place because he didn't want to be the face of a public company. I mean, there's barely a photo of him that you can find online. And so Brown was, I mean, he even talked about it, people tell me, you know, he saw himself sort of more as a chairman than, you know, a chief executive. And, um, you know, one guy in the book, he uh, talks to me about, you know, the conversations he'd have with Brown. And he, um, you know, he would change the subject if you started to talk about some of the racier parts <laughs> of uh, processing. So... I'm not really convinced that he could have run a proper, you know, effective payment processing operation. And then you have this other kid, Jan Marslek, who is 10 years younger. I mean, he's basically my age. Uh, I'm sort of mid 40. So when he became COO, he was 30. And Charmer knows technology, really smart, but at the same time, no formal qualifications. I mean, didn't even finish high school, let alone a degree. He always said he was too busy. <laughs> Can't drive, again, too busy. And he couldn't really work anywhere else. He was sort of stuck with Wirecard, but he didn't really have the experience. And so you get this picture of him, like they referred to him internally as sort of Wirecard's chaotic genius. Right. And so he was chief operating officer, but he had no staff, which is weird, right? Yes. And no team. He would just fly around the world, constantly doing deals, sort of everywhere and nowhere, not really accountable to anyone. So I kind of think Wirecard did have a real processing business but it was losing money for a very long time. And, you know, you can run quite a large business for a long time if it doesn't matter if you lose money, right? And, you know, so there probably was a moment when Wirecard could have continued as a legitimate business, but it would have had to stop growing, and that's the thing. So how did it all unravel in the end? I mean, so two things killed it, really. One is we published a story in the Financial Times on in October 2019, which basically said, this is how the fraud is being committed. These are the fake companies. Here are all the documents which show what's going on. And, you know, I'm very proud of that. It's like, here is the evidence of what is happening. This is a fraud. And that, in a sense, killed the company. It was, you know... And you should... It took you how long to, to, to write that article? Oh, you know, I mean, you... we, we... So I had that moment of revelation in May and... It was six months, although, I mean, we were delayed for three months by the internal investigation. But let's say, I mean, it was three months of, you know, just trying to work out, okay, which company could it possibly be? Ringing every company, trying to get an answer, um, you know, because they're trying to talk, I'm trying to talk to them about, have you ever worked with Wirecard? No, why are you asking me about Wirecard? Hmm. You know, so just all of that thing to get the answers, to build it, then to try and write it, make it understandable. Um, and, you know, Lionel Barber, the editor of the FT, he was quite angry by this point. And he'd been with us every step of the way, and so had the lawyer. So it was this sort of team of the four of us who were really very closely involved in every story. And he had said to us, which is unusual for a newspaper, but he was like, I want us to draw blood this time. I want an exocet. And that's what we were trying to do. And so from that moment on, it was Wiley Coyote. It had gone off the cliff, and its legs were spinning, and it was just... When's it going to plunge? But it stayed like that for eight months. 
This is the thing that still astonishes me. I was convinced we printed enough evidence for, you know, the police to knock on the door and start making their inquiries. But companies get to investigate themselves. I don't think there's another area of life where this happens. Wirecard appointed KPMG to come and conduct a special audit. It takes six months, they do all of that. And KPMG says, we couldn't find any evidence that all these sales you're claiming are real. And Wirecard flips that on its head and says, KPMG didn't find any evidence that there was fraud. <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy when you say it like that, but yeah. that's, you know, what they were working with. And so everything boils down to the audit. Ernst and Young have signed off on Wirecard's accounts every year for a decade. Will they sign off again? Because if they do, that's a big wet blanket over the whole thing. Even if it's a qualified audit, maybe Wirecard can make its way through, and so will they sign? And what it comes down to is two pieces of paper. And, and I mean, this is one of the most farcical sections in the whole book where how they come to get these two pieces of paper, which involves sort of going to the office of a Manila divorce lawyer who's a YouTuber. He's got um, one of those plaques for like 100,000 subscribers on his wall. And he's the guy that Wirecard says is in charge of accounts which hold 1.9 billion euros of Wirecard, the European financial institution's cash. And it's in these special accounts at two Philippine banks. And so there's a whole bunch of people involved. Uh, auditors from EY, KPMG, Wirecard lawyers, and they're getting this convoy of cars, which the divorce lawyer has arranged for police motorcycle outriders to help them cut through the traffic in uh, Manila in the Philippines. And they go to the first branch, and they don't go to the headquarters. They go to this tiny branch on a little road with, you know, like a bicycle shop and garages and <laughs> things like that on it, and go into this tiny branch where um, they all crowd in, and there's basically just enough room for them and the staff. And one of them jumps up and is like, hello, yes. And I'm like, hi, hi, we're here about Wirecard. He looks blank. And then, you know, the divorce lawyer looks at him and says, yes, you know Wirecard? And he's like, ah, yes, Wirecard. And he produces this envelope. And then they repeat a whole other thing. But these envelopes are basically two pieces of paper which show Wirecard's accounts have 1.9 billion euros in them. And that's all the evidence that EY has that this money exists. And this is in March 2020. And as the months progress... EY are starting to get a little bit nervous about this, you know, what with everything else going on. And they're trying to ask the bank to separately confirm it. And they're asking Wirecard, can they actually transfer some of this money to Germany? And Wirecard, you know, Marcus Brown keeps saying, yes, yes, no, the money's definitely on its way. It'll come soon. But, you know, nothing happens. And so eventually, someone seeing it at EY has to get in touch with the chief executive of each bank directly and say, what's going on? And these two letters come back. And what the letters say is, these accounts are spurious. <laughs> and what happens in Germany is everyone has to Google the word spurious because it's quite as an obscure English <laughs> word. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose. The, I mean, the, the book is astonishing because, as I said earlier, it is stranger than fiction, right? I mean, and it's mad, isn't it? The, and in fact, many of these stories, I mean, the, the visit to the bank in, in Manila, the, the remote branch, reminded me of a story about a Chinese fraud where they did exactly the same thing, where they, they took the fund manager to the branch. And, you know, he, they showed him on the computer in the branch, the hundreds of millions in the, in the account. And he went away very satisfied, all ready to buy the shares. And they were 40 minutes away in the car. And then he realized he'd left his coat in the bank. And so they told the driver to turn around and went back to the branch. And they were disassembling it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, these, you know, when you're doing a multi-hundred million or billion fraud, then you can deploy a lot of resources in order to cover it up. But the, the book's amazing. I mean, normally I ask people to recommend a book and I'm not going to do that because it's obvious which book we should recommend. Just wonder now, I mean, you've done this. What do you do next? Oh, well, the next story. I mean, um, I'm sure someone out there has, uh, has something that they think should be in the public, some skullduggery or um, wrongdoing, and but, hopefully they'll get in touch. Because it's my theory that there's a huge amount of skullduggery going on and has been going on for the last several years. I mean, you know, most of it is honest companies flattering their earnings in order to make their bonuses, the bonuses for their hmm. CEOs and CFOs. But sometimes once you've done that for a while, I mean, you know, this is a kind of the Enron thing. So once you've made up a bit of revenue, the following year, you've got to do a bit more and do a bit more. And that's often how these frauds develop. So, I mean, you think 
Do you think you're going to be pretty busy? Oh, I think there's some pretty big frauds out there. I mean, money's been free for a decade. And we've also had this weird market. I mean, Wirecard exploited this very effectively, where they sort of sprinkled technology over everything as a sort of fairy dust. Our business uses technology. It's like, oh, well, it's clearly worth 10 times what a normal business is worth. And, you know, you, at the same time, you've had people like SoftBank just spraying money around. And so I think you've, we're going to find a lot of corporate frauds like that. A lot of people have just been juicing the numbers because no one's really checking. Nobody ever checks. And, and then we also just have crypto, which is, I mean, it boggles my mind that, you know, we, we talk all about Wirecard, which is, you know, I mean, people lost 20 billion euros, something in that region. But then you have crypto frauds happening all the time. And like people having normal conversations where they describe a Ponzi scheme business model as if that's normal and fine. And so, um, you know, I, I'm a long standing crypto skeptic. I mean, I was saying Bitcoin would go to nothing when it was like $1,000. So clearly, I know nothing. But I remain of the view that at some point, we will look back on the crypto madness as this sort of collective mania. It's interesting. I, I, I mean, I think crypto is quite a, a, a weird sort of area. I've been trying to learn about it. And I, I've been watching it. And, uh, you know, I, I think when I, I can see where Bitcoin is going, and when it gets to my target, I think I might start to look at it quite seriously. I don't you see, know. This is, the, this is the danger, Steve. You see this time and again with crypto. What happens is people invest mental energy and effort in learning about it, because it's genuinely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. But what they do is they mistake that interest and the fascinating bits of the mechanics for sort of some sort of financial rationale for the whole thing. And there just isn't. All of these crypto schemes are hammers looking for nails, and there are no nails. And never mind the fact, by the way, that if you're buying Bitcoin, then you're engaged in some sort of horrendous anti-environment global warming project due to the absurd amounts of energy involved. So crypto has successfully rebranded itself from a currency to an asset. And sure, there are enough people around who are sticking a bit of money into crypto because why not? And that's going to last quite a long time. But it's sort of like the NFT stuff is the canary in the coal mine here. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a, a hilarious... Matt Levine has been hilarious about the, the board Ape um, movement. And, you know, I kind of get I kind of get all that. One thing you mentioned, SoftBank. I mean, SoftBank was pretty heavily involved here. It was pretty heavily involved in Greensill. Have you spent any time thinking about what else they're involved in? SoftBank's a fascinating company, isn't it? Oh, it really is. And, you know, Massa Sun, who runs it, really got into trouble in the first dot-com boom, but was basically bailed out because he made a couple of incredibly, you know, once-in-a-lifetime bets. Visionary. Visionary, I think, well, is the word I mean, you're looking lucky, for. Well, I mean, lucky, you know, like Alibaba. And that bails out an awful lot of bad stuff. Yeah. What I think the problem is, is premising a $100 billion of investment funds on that strategy. Um, and I think with SoftBank, what we see is a result of that. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite funny. Your, your former home, the, the, the Lex column, suggested that what they should do is buy back their stock, which I was quite, <laughs> got quite a lot of debt. I thought, well... They've obviously been they've obviously been listening to the wrong the, the wrong source. I thought that was I thought it was hilarious. But I, I mean I've been I've been fascinated by SoftBank. I've been I saw Massasan speak for the first time in 2016, and he spoke at the Goldman Sachs at an amazing macro conference with you know Howard Marks, Mike Bloomberg, and Massa. And, and when he, he spoke, I, I mean I. I He's had, oh yeah, I gave Steve Jobs the idea for the iPhone. He didn't quite say that, but that was the kind of the, and it's bizarre. Um, it's been absolutely bizarre. So it's interesting that he was involved in Wirecard and that he was involved in Greensill and we'll see what else he's been involved in. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And the book is amazing. Well done. Oh, thank you so much. It is, um, I think, hopefully out now. And thank you for having me on to uh, talk about it. It's been great fun. Thank you.
I'm joined now by Mark Hiley, who's founding and managing partner at Analyst, which is a research boutique in London, which I've got a high, high regard for. I think they do really good work, especially on the short side, where we don't have that many short selling experts in Europe. And I wanted to talk to Mark because the analyst published, I think, over 40 more um, reports on Wirecard. Obviously, there wasn't a buy <laughs> report among them. And this, just to get the sell side perspective on this, because obviously we've heard from Dan, the journalist, and we're also going to hear from Freddie Brick at Muddy Waters Capital. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Just tell me, how did you get involved in Wirecard in the first place? Well, thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here. So, yeah, our, our history or my history on Wirecard goes back quite a long way. We started writing about the stock as a short recommendation in 2014, um, late 2014. So across the sort of six years from the first note to the 47th note and Wirecard's collapse, um, <laughs> we had an interesting journey. How did we get into the story? I, I saw them present at a German investment conference. I think it's called the Eigen Capital Forum in Frankfurt. And it would have been Marcus Braun throwing up some pet presentation about the future of payments. Uh, and it just didn't make any sense to me. Like, I sat there for 45 minutes. I couldn't understand what they did. Uh, I had a look at the stock. It looked like it was on a ridiculous valuation. And I, I said to my analyst at the time, can you, can you have a look at this? You know, we need, we need a few new short ideas in Europe. We're building a business. This would be pretty commercial. And uh, he went off, looked at the accounts, um, cash flow statement looked a bit off, and we looked at the acquisitions they've been doing in Asia, and you know they just look, look weird to be honest. They were buying very small businesses in Asia, and if you look to the subsidiary filings, immediately post acquisition, the the sort of these small businesses became quite big businesses under Wirecard's new accounting techniques. So we put out a short note, um, got actually got a bit of commercial traction in the market the day it was published. The stock was off about ten percent. For one day only, um, <laughs> and then you know the, the rest is sort of history. The stock subsequently went to the moon, and then uh, and then back pretty much to zero. So, so just, that was how we got into the story. So how do you maintain your composure when this is going against you? Because obviously, if you're in a hedge fund and the short goes against you, you've got to you you've got to reduce as a as a sell side short seller. You just keep on plugging away. Yeah. So look, as a, as a research business, not running money, you have the privilege of being able to take a long-term view and sit through the volatility. And we do that because we think it helps our clients. Um, now, they have a problem of managing a bet size. And if you go short Wirecard and it triples, becomes three times big bet and, and you have to trim it and, and lock in losses. So that's a problem. But we we tried to sort of stay sane, if you like, by grounding the research in the fundamentals. And there was two things I wrote down when I started the research. I was like, okay, these two things would change my view. Number one, a reduction in the gross debt. And number two, an improvement in the free cash flow conversion. And across six years of accounts and 24 quarters of Wirecard beating and raising the EBITDA estimates, um, neither of those two things ever happened. And you know the gross debt continued to build and build and build. And even though they changed their sort of definition of free cash flow a few times and invented some new accounting items to hide to balance the books, um, the sort of my underlying estimate of free cash flow never, never improved. So I, I sort of was able to stick with it from a fundamental point of view. And then, you know, we'll get onto this, but the amazing work Dan and the FT did you know, that sort of lent support that, you know, I wasn't just sort of one guy on his own in Clapham North. Uh, <laughs> what do they call it? Howling at the moon or something. So we sort of had like a growing community of people publicly asking questions alongside the fundamental analysis we were doing. And that sort of kept us on the on the pitch. It was pretty difficult at times. And then at various points in the coverage, we did field work. So another thing we we found was like, it's just very hard to find a business as big as Wirecard presented to the investment community. So, you know, you could go to Munich Airport and get a, you know, get a Bratwurst and you'd see Wirecard on the back of the till receipt. 
But at the same time, you you could not find a big business in Germany. And we, you know, we went to India. We, we couldn't really find their business beyond a few messy offices and, and sort of empty shipping containers at the end of the street. Hmm. Um, so all of that kind of kept us sane, I suppose. And did you know from the start that it was a fraud or you just thought, oh, they're kind of cooking the books? And, and when did you realize that it was actually fraudulent? Yeah, I, I think in equity research, buy side, sell side, you, you never quite know 100% something's a fraud. I think you start off with a suspicion and pattern recognition and the body of evidence grows and you get into the story and then you see patterns again and again in the public accounts, you know, inflated acquisition numbers, which don't make sense, changes of accounting, promotional rhetoric in the investment presentation, blah, blah, blah. But, but to actually prove out a fraud in equity research, in a regulated research business is really, really difficult, if not impossible. Sure. Because we're never going to get, you know, we're never going to look at bank statements. We're never going to speak to insiders. We're never going to see messages between the CFO of Asia and someone yeah. down the line issuing a fake receivable and defrauding a bank in Indonesia. And that's obviously the work which journalists can do, which is like absolutely incredible long form investigative journalism. We would never be able to do that. So we can only take our research so far where we get to the point where, you know, on the balance of probability, this looks like a massive fraud. And actually, if you look at it on a stock-based risk reward, you know, Wirecard at one point was sitting with a 15 or $20 billion market cap, a couple of hundred million of best case free cash flows, massive downside. So it looks like a really, really good short idea. Yeah. And you've got massive optionality on it being a fraud and, and a zero. So that's normally the, the way it works. You never quite get there. And when you publish something like that, do you send it to the company? Do you, did you have any contact with the company? No, you, because uh, Freddie, we Freddie did. told us that Carson got called up by somebody who you know, offered him millions of euros not to publish. Well, it never happened to us. But <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we did speak to the company early on. We had you know, 2014, 15, we had email exchanges um, and got back heavily redacted uh, replies from the investor relations team, which sort of gave us some suspicion that the legal was involved in sort of editing email conversations with analysts. Uh, we were invited out to the headquarters in in Munich. Uh, we declined the visit. Um, we didn't think we'd learn anything. And actually meeting a management team is the worst way to discover a short idea. And then over the years, we we did our own field work, uh, did our own due diligence without, without the company. We saw them present, obviously. And we had shareholders uh, who we were trying to get out of the stock and raise a warning sign. And they were like, oh, no, you know, just go to Munich. Just just go and meet Marcus. He's a visionary. Um, <laughs> just spend one hour with them. We'll help you get a meeting with the company. I was like, "You, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, I, I, I'll stick to my own stick to my own work. So did you did you spend much time with the shareholders? And, and what was their pushback? I mean, because the numbers don't lie, right? Well, no, numbers don't lie. But if the numbers are made up to such an extent, and you know, it's it's hard for for people to to believe, you know, the scale of the fraud. And and quite often, shareholders would have you know a small position, fifty or hundred basis points in a big European generalist fund. So maybe you're looking at it as one of fifty or hundred stocks, and you say, well, if you know, if it doubles, great. If it goes to zero, I'm not too worried. But I don't think it's a zero because the numbers look great, and the investment banks say it's great, and I met the company. Yeah, so our business, we you know we we have uh, you know clients on who are share, on shareholder register and who have short positions. We see our job as to make money for people with short positions and to save money. Yes, protect protect shareholders. Um, and their pushback, the shareholders' pushback, was generally yeah, it's one of very few European tech growth companies. Potentially has a scalable platform. Growth's amazing. <laughs> We've seen the product. Management's visionary. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of a unique opportunity. And remember, a lot of them made a lot of money, right? So people who were early in, made a lot of money before it went to zero. People who were early into this story, we might have been buying it at 5, 10, 20, 50 euros. So once you're sitting on a 500% profit on a long position, you know, if you've got some guy ringing you up saying, oh, it might be a fraud, the accounting was really dodgy. I don't know if you, I just don't know if people have that much time for that, that conversation. Or there's a cognitive dissonance, right? They don't want to hear it. 
Yeah, it's very funny because that's exactly what Dan said. I said, you know, why did this go on for so long? I think one of the reasons is that people think that they think that they're brilliant and they trust the management because they've made money and they don't believe that that gain could evaporate quite so quickly. I suppose if we were looking at that today, then people who have been in the tech sector in 2022 have, have experienced the 80% fall in Arivian, which came to the market at a $100 billion valuation with no sales. So they, perhaps people have had a bit more yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess also, you know, Wirecard is a rare event, yes. right? It, it, you know, Enron, Steinhoff, NMC, actually, maybe not that rare. But um, it's quite a rare event. So if, you, if you've looked at a 1,000 stocks and you own 100, you know, the chance of one of your stocks being like a massive fraud, the biggest fraud that Europe has seen, or public markets worldwide, then you know that's just not like something people are factoring in probability-wise into their into their thinking. And the system's set up to perpetuate these things, right? The audit, the bankers, the management, the, the sell-side coverage, the accountants, the lawyers are supporting the perpetuation of the story. So then when someone tells you something that you know is, is outside of your normal sphere of vision, then what do you do? You turn around and say, oh, the FT's been corrupted by hedge funds. Come on, that's <laughs> reductio ad absurdum. Like, let's let's get real about this. No, that that was the most absurd part of it. That the idea that the FT was in cahoots with the hedge funds. I I don't even begin to understand the thinking behind that premise and how the regulator could could pick that up. But Mark, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting. It's been a, a fascinating story. I don't know if you've read the book yet, but uh, I think you, you'll get a lot of fun reading it. Yeah, well, I've pre-ordered it on, on Amazon. So uh, it's going to be my summer holiday reading if I can wait till the kids break up. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Steve. So I'm really pleased that I'm joined by Freddie Brick, who's a partner at Muddy Waters Capital. And Muddy Waters, of course, were involved in Wirecard. Freddie, what was it like to be short of Wirecard, which stayed, I mean, at astronomical valuations for such a long time? Tell us, tell us how it looked like from your perspective. Sure, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Um, you know, we, we honestly... In many ways, we're pretty lucky. We were we were kind of briefly short Wirecard. Um, off the top of my head, it was around 2015 or 16 when some of the um, Zatara uh, reports came out, the, the Matt Earle um, research. And um, uh, I, say, I say we were fortunate to only be short for a brief period of time because I, I know a lot of short sellers who held on to the bitter end or at various points over its you know near 15 year history were were short the stock and while obviously on the day um it collapsed they were ultimately vindicated um i think net net most of them will tell you that they either lost money or a decent amount of sanity uh spending time on it so it's it's one of these bizarre things with frauds where the person who usually makes the most money in shorting them is the last guy in the short. It's, it's never usually the people who have done the vast majority of the, the work or, or certainly been early. So that's, um, you know, that, that's kind of our brief history of, of being short Wirecard. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the really amazing thing about Wirecard, as you alluded to, is, is how long it went on. Um, you know, I, I certainly remember the early stuff that Dan McCrum had written that uh, Inside the House of Wirecard piece. And, um, you know, I, I think from our side, and, and again, we, we weren't really that encyclopedic. We, we kind of saw it as somewhat protected by the German state, which I, I think has now been fairly well documented. Um, you know, from our side, we felt it was it was nigh on possible as an activist trade, just because it was fairly obvious to anyone who'd done any real work that this was a fraud. It became even more obvious after the FT's journalism on um, 
the you know the findings in Singapore and and Dubai and um, and the Philippines and uh, you know we we felt as short activists there was nothing additional that could ever be said that would get someone to to sell the stock um, so we we just didn't think there was a lot of point uh, working on it additionally and then with the with the kind of German states protectionism. Um, you know, we at the time were under investigation in, in Germany, which I think is well known for our critical research on Australia. And um, I believe there were a couple of people who'd previously gone to prison uh, in Germany for writing on wire cards. So the, you know, the regulatory environment was incredibly hostile. And I think that did in some way deter people, you know, when they kind of weighed the upside downside of spending time and money on continuing to short and research Wirecard, um, I think that played pretty heavily on a lot of people's minds. So, Freddie, one of, the, one of the stories in the book is that Wirecard attempted to bribe your colleague Carson, Carson Block, not to publish or to say positive things about Wirecard. Tell us, tell us about that story. Yeah, that was one of the stranger things that I've... Uh, Ever, I guess, experienced. Uh, we were sitting in the office, and um, you know, we 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 all collaborate and, and work together on projects. It's not like a siloed process where two people work on this and two people work on this. We we all know what we're working on at, at any given time. And um, you know, Carson came over to me and he said, uh, "You'll never guess who just called me." So I, I didn't guess correct, and he's like, "So and so." called i'm like okay they said it's it's one of the stranger phone calls i've ever got because i i was just offered five million uh current was euros or, or dollars not to publish on my card tomorrow and i said well look i mean as far as i'm aware we are not publishing anything on my card tomorrow um can we take the money <laughs> so no joke, jokes aside we, are, we obviously never really um considered that but uh yeah it was it was truly bizarre and i think it gave us a real taste i i i subsequently learned that there was another short seller i think who was offered money and they they may have even tried to bribe some journalists as well not to cover the company i i do believe that that was a real offer um you know so i'm i don't think it was hyperbole i i really do believe they were prepared to pay people significant sums of money to to stay quiet um yeah it gave me a real taste for like what we thought was probably some sort of like organized crime or nefarious guys behind it and yeah generally speaking we've taken a policy that life's short and making it shorter by going up against organized crime is, is not necessarily uh worthwhile you got semi-honest fraudsters you can go after <laughs> Yeah, a regular run-of-the-mill crooks is, yeah. is fine. Um, you know, guys who, you know, are connected to Russian mafia or, um, you know, Glencore, uh, we stay away from those guys. Yeah. Well, Freddie, listen, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thank you. Well, that was an amazing story, and I think it was useful to look at the saga from three sides from the perspective of those market participants, as well as from Dan's perspective. But there is no question who is the star here. Dan McCrum has done a remarkable piece of investigative reporting and has written a fantastic book. Money Men deserves to do well, and in fact, I think it's bound to be a bestseller. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you next month.